I see because of these structural factors to which you've referred, population growth, constrained supply in Vancouver, especially Toronto, I think also to a great extent, mm-hmm. constrained land supply, and then just bureaucratic constraints on supply. I'm very bullish uh, that there will continue to be upward pressure on prices. Welcome to the Tom Story Show with Steve Karish and Tom Story, where we discuss everything real estate or whatever else is on our minds. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Tom Story Show, your weekly real estate roundup podcast. Uh, This episode of the Tom Story Show is brought to you by Realty Ninja, and you will hear more on them later. If you're watching us on YouTube and you have not already, make sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel. If you're listening on the audio platforms and you come back every single week and enjoy the show, all we ask, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. On to today's guest. There are big names in real estate, and then there is this guy. The top of the mountain, we finally got him on the show. It's Steve's relationship. Jonathan Cooper has joined the show. He's the president of McDonald Real Estate Group. You also have an extensive background on the development side of the real estate world, and I really want to get into that. But I want to start right off the bat. How long have you known Steve, and how have you put up with him for this long? I want to you know, get to the real questions right away. Steve, so I think, great question. Uh, <laughs> So, Steve, forgive my uh, memory lapse here. I think it's been at least a decade. When did you start at McDonald Realty? Uh, December 15th, 2008 was my start date. Yeah, 15 years, so, so more than yeah, a decade. Were you, you were at McDonald back then? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, I started who. in, uh, man, can I, can I nail the date? It was just after Canada Day. So let's say, let's just pick a date, July 4th, 2006, thereabouts. Okay. okay. Yeah. And then and your so I, background, Jonathan, you, so you were with McDonald Realty, then you went to the development world, and then you've come back to McDonald Realty, yes, correct? Absolutely. So I was with McDonald Realty, McDonald Real Estate Group uh, for a decade, just over. And then I spent six years uh, working. I was the chief operating officer for the Holborn Group, which is a real estate development property investment company based here in Vancouver. And then in March of this year, I uh, returned to McDonald Real Estate Group. Yeah. Despite Steve still being there after all this time. Yeah. It was, yeah. It was something I had to come to terms with before I agreed to come back. But uh, yeah, I was. Thank so you. Thank you. <laughs> no, go, go on, go on, go on. <laughs> well, his, uh, the, my office is in uh, Vancouver, Caresdale on the west side of Vancouver. And Steve's office is in, in the Fraser Valley, as you probably know. So there's yes. at least there's some a geographical buffer between us. <laughs> And then, so before, so 2006 started with McDonald's Real Estate Group. Before that, were you in real estate sales or did you come from a different industry to get to that point? Different industry, different okay. industry. Great question. So, uh, and, and stop me if this is going on too long, but I'll, I'll give you the, 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 I'll give you the, um, the quick history. Hmm. So I did, I grew up, uh, I was born in the United States, moved to Canada when I was eight years old to Vancouver okay. um, 19, in 1988. Um, and then I, so I, I, most of my formative years finished elementary school, high school were in Vancouver. I did my undergraduate degree at the university of Toronto, um, at the downtown campus, Tom, I know you're Toronto based. Yep. So, um, the last place I lived there was just South. I'm going to get this wrong, but just South, is it Christie subway station or Christie pits? Anyway, okay. yeah, Christie yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. I mean, kind of Toronto's great, right? Because I, I remember we were sort of sandwiched in between little Italy, little Korea, and little Eritrea. There was like this one block on Bloor that was all these, not Ethiopian, Eritrean uh, restaurants, shops, that kind of thing. 
So really enjoyed my time there. Came back to Vancouver. I worked, uh, I did a couple different things. I worked, believe it or not, I worked on uh, Sam Sullivan's mayoral campaign for mm-hmm. about six months. You may recall Sam Sullivan was a longtime city councilor. He's a quadriplegic. He's in a wheelchair. And then he ran, he ran for mayor in 2004. And then kind of through my dad and through a, a relationship there, I was hired as a lowly paid staffer on his mayoral campaign, which he wound up winning. So that was a really great experience. And I would encourage anybody, be it through volunteering or, or maybe a kind of like intern position, if you can spend some time working in politics, especially municipal politics, um, there's an incredible learning experience because we met with so many kind of special interest groups and community groups all over Vancouver. And even though I grew up here, it was it opened my eyes to all these different um, subsections of the city that I'd never really thought about before. So it was an awesome experience. Um, There's, there seems to be a lot of crossover between politics and real estate, and especially in the C-level positions or president of real estate companies. Like we've had Tim Hudak on the show who was, you know, yep. you know the Ontario leader for a while in the Conservative Party. And and there seems to be all these different people. We've had, we had the housing minister on uh, recently from BC and yep. Ra- and Ravi. It's, it's, it's yeah, we yep. had Ravi on the show, and I think I actually want to touch on a, a bunch of what he talked about because I think that plan's launching very soon, and how mm-hmm. that's going to change the landscape of everything. Do you think the political side of things has helped you, like starting there, going into what you're doing now? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And I'll tell you, I could go on and on about that, but in two ways, people don't. You guys get it, I guess. But a lot of people don't think about the fact that, especially in real estate development, the business, like the government is your business partner. Mm. You can't do anything without a good relationship with the permitting, permitting authority, which is usually the municipal government, right? You, you, no development permit, no building permit, no project. So right. whether you like it or not, you need to have a good relationship, like a functional working relationship, both with staff and especially if you're going through rezonings or kind of entitlement processes, uh, Ultimately, those come down to a vote at city council. So you need to have a good relationship with the with the city councilors and the mayor and to understand their worldview and understand their priorities. Hundred percent. Yeah. So so it's definitely something that you you would recommend to people that are starting off their careers Absolutely. to go through that path. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I yeah, I mean, God, it's so many this is gonna be a lot of fun. There's so many paths we can go down. Firstly, we yeah. should all I mean, to start with get to break it down really basic, we should all vote, right? We're we're privileged to live in a democracy. We shouldn't take that for granted. And that's something mm-hmm. I drill into my own kids. Um, and actually, we we bring that my wife and I bring them with us to vote if okay. we can. If it's, if it, you know, it's not mail-in or something, uh, even during COVID, because we want them to see, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so we should vote. And yeah, you should get to the extent you can. People have, you, you know, be busy with the career and the family and other commitments, but you should get involved in politics. Uh, and regardless of your political, like affiliation, orientation, um, volunteering, support your local candidate, write to your MP. Uh, because again, we're, pri- we're privileged to live in a democracy and the democracy is only as strong as the extent to which we sort of participate in, in, in that, uh, process. Um, and yeah, you'll, you'll meet a lot of really interesting people and there's so many interconnections between real estate and, um, and, and, uh, min- you know, especially municipal, but provincial and federal politics as well. So I, I wanted to take this conversation to start, I wanted to start with the development side of things because sure, you had sure. such an experience in that, you know. Uh, it's not new news, the fact that uh, we don't have enough housing in Canada that people can afford, which I think is maybe the key point in, in terms of that conversation. It's the affordability. We have supply right now in both of our markets for the first time in a while that started to come, but it's not necessarily affordable supply. On the development side, like for cities like Toronto, Vancouver, is it being pessimistic to say like we're too far gone here and there's no going back? Or 
is there a path to get to a point where we can actually build quick? You know, we can get enough housing for the immigration levels that we have, or is it just like, you know, we're past the point of no return? I would never say that we're past the point of no return, um, but it, it, I'm not, how shall I say? Let me turn the question around. Sure. It, Political I move. Say? I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tom, I see uh, uh, because of these structural factors to which you've referred population growth, constrained supply in Vancouver, especially Toronto, I think also to a great extent, mm. constrained, constrained land supply and then just bureaucratic constraints on supply. I'm very bullish uh, that there will continue to be upward pressure on prices. So there's a positive way of <laughs> answering your question. <laughs> if you own real estate, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, right? So yeah, you have, uh, in, and I forgive me, the Toronto data is a little more fuzzy in my head, but let's call it a very low single digit uh, um, vacancy in the rental market. Very right? low, One, very two, low. You know, probably less than 3% in both, in both markets. And we have robust, Kind of, you know, the government, federal government, my wife's an immigrant, so I'm, I'm 100% in support of this. But, the you know, federal government's targeting 1% of our population per year uh, in terms of, you know, immigration. So that's roughly 400,000 immigrants per year. And if you assume, right, Tom, that immigrants come, most of them don't come as single. So let's just assume for every three immigrants, you need one housing unit. So what is that? 100 and 150,000 you kind know, of housing units that are going to be demanded via immigration. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, again, you already have 1% vacancy in the rental market. Um, the, you know, and we've, what are we, we've surpassed 40 million in population. Now we're going to, we're pushing towards 50 million. And the CMHC themselves said further to your point that we're, we're kind of on track to be 3 million housing units short of where we need to be sort of for broad based mm-hmm. affordability. Uh, and as I experienced, and again, I don't want to go into too many details in a way, but yeah, it's very difficult in markets like Vancouver, and I think Toronto as well, to bring new product to the market. Very difficult, regardless, almost regardless of what type of product, like, be it rental or, or for like, sale. Because like we are in a housing crisis in terms of just all the numbers that we look at. Is there no way at some point we can get all the people in one room and all hands on deck and just be like, how are we going to figure this out? I'm sure this has happened on a political scale. But like, are we not just like, we all know it. We've all talked about it forever. Me and Steve talk about it every single week on this show, but nothing's really changing, you know? No, absolutely. Right. So, you know, what, what, oh my gosh, it's it's a huge topic. And I think there have been, I know, I don't think, I know there have been some attempts probably in Ontario, certainly here to get different levels of government together. And how can we do this? But you have to remember all you always have to remember with real estate development and construction, um, it is a local prerogative, right? It is it is basically, for the most part, municipally controlled. And so, as much money as the federal government w- might want to throw at it, and as and as um, uh, <laughs> as exercised as the provincial government might get about housing, at the end of the day, it is the you know the 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 municipality. It's this. It's the it's Surrey. It's 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 Coquitlam. It's Vancouver yeah. that actually issue the permit. So when it comes to accelerating and increasing the supply and the kind of um, uh, uh, the velocity of supply of housing, it's, it's, a, it's a, a nitty gritty kind of municipal uh, question that's going to vary even within Metro Vancouver. It, uh, the, the speed with which uh, projects can get approved varies wildly from one municipality to the next, even some right. municipalities that are right next door to each other. And so it's hard. I think it's difficult for politicians to understand and for the public to understand. It's like, why can't we just move this faster? You know, my, yeah. you know, my MP... My MP saying, or, or, or Justin Trudeau saying, we're in a housing crisis, but Justin Trudeau, ironically, 
even him, he doesn't have that much control over how, let's say, Coquitlam um, decides to right. go through their development and building permit process. And my understanding is the courts have sort of affirmed that those sorts of things like development permits, rezonings are a municipal prerogative, right? It's not like the, the federal government can't step in and just railroad municipalities. That's my understanding. I'm not a lawyer, but. When we yeah. when we had Ravi on, he basically said that he was having conversations with all the different mayors, and a lot of them either liked yeah. or didn't like the direction that they were going. Now, again, I'm an Ontario go guy, but everything that you guys do eventually trickles its way down here in one way or another. With David Eby and what Ravi is doing, and when they officially launch this, where you can build more on on one lot, you know, th put yeah. three units on one lot, is this yeah. a good step forward? Is are they on the right path here in terms of what needs to be done? I think it's like three steps forward, two steps back. So that that is that recently passed city council in Vancouver. They called it missing middle. So yeah, you can take a home on the west side of Vancouver now, and um, you can build kind of between four and six units depending on a few uh, criteria. And so so good. That's the three steps forward. The two steps back is that of course they can't just make it simple and clean and linear. They have to be like, oh well, we're still going to charge you a CAC because there's an increase. Sorry. I don't. I, I want to make sure I'm translating this into Ontario mm. speak, but CAC basically is the um, monetary or other contribution that a, a landowner or developer makes in exchange for more density. Okay. Right. Um, it's a little more legally fuzzy than that, but that's what it boils down to. And so instead of just saying, you know, we we're in a housing crisis, we have all these single-family homes in Vancouver, without destroying the character of our single-family neighborhoods, we want more density in those areas. So you know what? You can now do a fiveplex, right? I mean, it's not that difficult. No, no, no. They have, oh no, there's going to be a CAC based on this formula and all this stuff. So I was like, oh, oh. And if you want to, I'm just trying to remember now, if you want to demolish and rebuild just a single family home, you actually get less FSR. So well. it's, it's, it's like, you know what? It, it, they just can't help themselves, right? It's like, they, yes, we need more missing middle housing, but you know, we wouldn't want developers to make money. So let's try to squeeze some of that back in terms of CAC. And it's like, okay, fine. And you saw it with the Broadway plan. Um, so the Broadway plan was a very ambitious OCP that was passed. I want to say uh, it was in um, 2022, I think. So that took a huge swath of Vancouver, right down the West Broadway, which is sort of our sec, like, what do they call it? You got downtown Vancouver, and then it's like core plus. So it's sort of our other downtown. Okay. And I live near there. Um, and I live within the Broadway plan sort of area. And they, on paper, enabled uh, massively increased densities in this area right? Um, so good. So that's three steps forward. But the two steps back is then because it was an election year, I think if you go into the fine print, there's, um, well, firstly, there's when they first pass it, yes, there's going to be a CAC, but the formula I don't think was uh, like kind of TBD on that. And if there's an existing rental building there, uh, they wanted to, you know, they want, they're, they're really paranoid about displacement. So you can only redevelop that. If you buy a rental building in Broadway plan, you want to redevelop it. You can get significantly increased density, but you can only do rental and you have to uh, allow the tenants that are there now to come back into the building at the rent that they're paying now or the, at the point in which you displace them or where they're paying elsewhere, whichever is less, right? And this is in an inflationary environment. And so, right. so, you, so you have some ambiguity around the CAC, you got this rental thing. So again, it's like, it makes... I politically, I can understand how they got there, but I, my fear is that in 10 years, very little new housing will actually be delivered under the Broadway plan because uh, developers are already facing um, 
very high interest rates on their carrying costs and on their construction loans, right? What are you at? Probably seven, eight, nine percent for a construction loan now. And uh, as you guys know, you probably talked about on the show, uh, a significant increase in hard costs over the last kind of 24 to 36 months coming out of COVID. So you're already facing that. And then you're looking at a piece of land. Well, yeah, it's in a good location, right? Broadway, there's going to be a, there's a subway, uh, what do we call it here? Like a SkyTrain, but below grade. So I guess it's subway. Like there's a new Broadway line going in. Uh, the construction's already started on that. So that's well underway. So that's going to happen. So there's a lot of good things. Vancouver is a great place to live, low vacancy rate. So you, if you can actually build a rental building, you'll probably be able to rent it out. So there's a lot of good fundamentals, but it just makes it awfully difficult for the num- numbers to pencil out, especially with these construction costs and these interest rates, right? So I'm going to let Steve jump in because he's been too quiet. Right. But I just want to, I just want to make a, a statement. Before you went back to McDonald's Real Estate Group, did you have a moment of thought to be like, I can fix this myself. I'm going to run for government because I feel like people like what you're saying. <laughs> Not, no. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think it's a secret that I'm, you know, I'm interested in politics in, in terms of, for the reasons I've already said, but I have no mm-hmm. immediate plans to, uh, okay. to run for government. All right. But I do. Hey, you know what? When I interacted with uh, city councilors um, when, when I was with Holborn, regardless of what, uh, of, you know, kind of their political orientation was, I tried to always tell them, and I meant this, like, thank you for doing what you do. Because some of these people have young families like me, and they're at these city council meetings till 10 p.m. on a regular basis, right? And they, they give up a lot, like a lot. It's a pretty thankless job. So I think we should try to and I always found with the housing file, I don't know if you guys find this, because you probably work with clients, I assume, from every conceivable background and walk of life, right? Mm-hmm. I always found when I sat down with city councilors, and I still have relationships with some of these people, no matter how much you disagree on, you can always find some common ground, right? And usually it's around, we need more housing faster. This episode is brought to you by Realty Ninja, real estate agents. Listen up. Realty Ninja has created over 9,000 Canadian real estate websites, and they are no joke. I've been using Realty Ninja in my business since they were a small little startup in North Vancouver. Tiny, dusty little office with old leather couch and all. But look at the ninjas now. Realty Ninja is the go-to platform for real estate agents in Canada. Websites are no longer a nice-to-have. They are a must. Your clients expect you to feature their listings in the best light possible. They expect you to go with Realty Ninja. The backbone of my real estate business is my website. I wouldn't pick any other company to host my website other than Realty Ninja. Don't believe me? Go to my website. Check it out right now. Go to krproperties.ca and you will see that it's powered by Realty Ninja and has been for over a decade. They have all of the features I need to grow my business year after year, including lead capture, mobile-friendly design, built-in SEO, and so much more. The best part of Realty Ninja is it's totally free to sign up, no credit card is required, and you only pay when you are ready to launch your new Realty Ninja website. And no, that's not it. Sign up today at realtyninja.com tom, and you will receive 20%, yes, 20% off of your entire first year when using Realty Ninja to host your real estate website. Their templates are super easy to work with yourself, or you can have the ninjas design something for you 
like I did. Not only is Realty Ninja the best product on the market, but it's also affordable. Listeners of this show know that I am as cheap as they come, and I've been using Realty Ninja for well over a decade now. Start your free trial today, and when you launch, save 20% using our link in the description below. And let Realty Ninja help you take your real estate business to the next level. And now, back to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone agrees on that pretty much. Yeah. Steve, I'm going to chime in with a couple of notes. CAC in Vancouver, very good explanation. In Surrey, we call them bribes, just so you know. (laughs) Like we we simplify things, right? So you're paying a bribe to get higher density. Uh, This is how upside down Vancouver is all over because our SkyTrain now goes underground. So like this is the type of sense that that we make, right? Uh, Yesterday, I was in um, a development course as part of my realtor education at the Fraser Valley board Mm -hmm. and uh, through this development, it was crazy because we always think like, Oh, there's, there's land and there's all this availability for, for building. And then the guy teaching the course who's a city planner. I don't know if he's technically a city planner. He was a planner, uh, development planner. And he brought up the map of what is available. And then he brought up the map of raw land that's available in the areas of where people want to live in the lower mainland of BC. Mm-hmm. And like there's a hair of Coquitlam in the north that's available. There's a hair in Maple Ridge. Everything else is already has at least single family homes on it. Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm-hmm. So there is no more mm-hmm. land. Um, so that was really eye opening. But then it came up development fees and the problem that you're alluding to with the city just being such an issue. But there's 21 cities in the lower mainland. Mm-hmm. So now you've got mm-hmm. 21 different sets of rules. So mm-hmm. when this this the guy teaching the course was actually part of some sort of development organization, um, and what they did is this is way back. This is a previous mayor, so I don't want to say it's the current mayor, but they found that in White Rock they had the by far the lowest development charges mm. at the city, very small mm. city. And so what they did is they recognized. I don't know if it was by way of award or what, but they publicly recognized the mayor and the city for having extremely low development and being development friendly. Mm -hmm. And the city immediately said, well, we better get those fees up because we want to be in line with everybody else because they were so far below the average. Yeah. Right. Like this is the type of situation that we're dealing with. You're like, the, look at this great place that's doing it right. And they go, well, there's a yeah. chance for more money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't want that. No, I, you know, it's funny because uh, Daily Hive uh, put out an article, I want to say a month ago, give or take, talking about the development, be it DCCs, CACs, um, building permit fees. Kind of, They looked at the sort of uh, government extractions, cash extractions, um, kind of per unit of housing. And go back 10 years or so, maybe less, um, I'm going to forget the name, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, something along those lines. They, they did a similar study. And I'm just going from memory, but both found roughly the same thing that let's say, you know, on a on a $500,000 unit of housing in Vancouver, which almost doesn't exist anymore, you know, there's over $100,000 of that. If, it's, if you're buying a new condo, that's a direct, leave aside all the bureaucratic, like the time and the delays, that's just direct government fees and levies, right? Mm-hmm. So it's directly increasing the cost of housing. And, and, and here's the thing. And I'm not really speaking so much to you two gentlemen, but I, th- I think it's an important um, educational process we need to keep having with the public is that private developers build the vast majority of the housing in Canada, right? The vast majority. 
And um, basically, it, in the to 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 build a unit of housing, you got your land cost, you got your hard cost, which is your construction cost, you got your soft cost, which is all those fees, your architect, your engineer, your geotechnical engineer, all that stuff. So land, hard cost, soft cost, and then you have your profit. Because remember, most of the housing is built by private developers, and they're not going to do it for free because it's not a charity. And if the government, let's say thirty percent of uh, of um, not thirty percent, but thirty percent of the soft cost, uh, or let's say again, a hundred hundred to hundred fifty thousand dollars of a five hundred thousand dollar unit of housing is direct fees and levies that the developer has to pay as they go through the process. Well. All that does is that increases the unit cost of housing because the developer is not going to build it unless they can make money. And the typical industry profit is 15%, right? I don't know where that came from, but that's developers usually like, well, in my performance, I need to make 15%. And 15%, one five, 15% isn't a lot when you when you consider the astronomical amounts of risk that developers take on, right? They got to buy a site, they got to service a site, they got to carry a site, they got to go through a really long entitlement permitting process. And so it's not a zero sum game. I think people think when you have like the foreign buyers tax and empty homes tax and additional school tax and uh, speculation tax and now foreign buyer ban, all of this stuff directly or indirectly makes it either more expensive or more difficult to deliver housing, which is how we got to the situation of having uh, a fairly, what did you call it, Tom? Like, well, yeah, like a housing supply crisis, right? Yeah. Like we have this, we have this pretty obvious mismatch and CBRE did a great study Um I think it was out of the Toronto office and they just looked, it, it was, it's great, right? They looked, they went back to like 1958 and they looked at population growth in Canada, Canada wide versus housing starts, growth and housing supply. Spoiler alert for most of the years in the intervening period, population growth outpaced housing supply. And shockingly, here we are further to your point, Steve, right? You go to look at, look what we have in Vancouver, right? You got the U S border, you have the agricultural land reserve, you have the mountains, you have the Pacific ocean, you have a limited supply of buildable land. And we've had, you know, thankfully 120 years plus of sort of with a, on a positive trend line basis, increasing population and economic growth. What, what do we think is going to happen here? Sorry, I'm going, I'm talking to myself. No, in it's, 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 this is <laughs> great. Do, do you think that then the path forward is okay? You know, the government taking away the GST for the purpose-built rentals was kind of a, a step in the step move. in the right direction, right? So that means they will build more of those. And then even what EB and Ravi are doing in terms of the, you know, up, up zoning everything. Okay, you can take your property, you can add two more units, you can rent out those other units. That's great for you as the homeowner. But we're kind of leaning to the direction of like, if the immigration levels continue where they are, and the bulk of these people are coming to BC or Ontario, is it like, okay, well, now the Canadian dream is like, come here and just have an affordable place to rent because it seems like most of the government side, sorry, my microphone, I got so pumped up my microphone. Jumping <laughs> yeah. over. Most of no the problem. government side of things is here's the inventory, which is rental inventory. And in the real estate world that we are in, most of what we do it, in Toronto, we can actually help people lease properties as realtors, but I know it's different in, in BC. Yeah. Are we just creating uh, the path forward for Canada where, yeah, you can come here and it's going to be a great life. And we have all these, like, let's be clear. I love living in Canada. I love this country. I'm very, very, very happy. I was born here. Me too. Well, well, you were yeah, but you get what I'm saying, but so there you go. But you came here, you came here, you came here and stayed, right? Absolutely. There's Absolutely. a, so there's a reason behind that, but is it like, okay, finally the supply is starting to maybe happen, but it's mm -hmm. rental supply and that's not going to, Short term, it will help create great opportunities for people, but long term, it's like 
doesn't help you build wealth. Doesn't help you. You get where I'm going with this. Don't we need to define that though? Like there needs to be a definition of affordable housing, right? Because affordable housing is not just going back to 1981 prices, right? Like I was actually <laughs> like, that's just, that's not what affordable housing is. So I came up with two and I've actually written these down and rewrote them a few times. So I think there's two definitions of affordable housing, depending on who's using it. First off, I think owning, let's, so let's look at it from the owning affordable housing. Owning and getting what I want within my current budget is affordable housing. But on the renting side, and this is where I think the government looks, it's probably affordable housing probably means renting what you need at average incomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are two totally different things. And I do think they're both properly, that's what people want is to fall within most of what they need and what they want within their current budget. And yeah. I don't think there's ever, I was just watching a video on this and they were talking about affordable housing and such an issue. And the first five minutes of the video, and I think it might've even been put out by the CBC of all people. And I don't think the CBC is a, pe- a person, but um, it Thank was put out. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it was, it was basically like going back into black and white footage and showing every five to 10 years, there's a new report about how unaffordable housing is. And so it's always going to be unaffordable unless we have a definition. And then, so that gives us a target. And then we have to try and actually get to that target. But I don't believe most people think about that because even if you're just renting or buying, your definition switches completely. People, when they're renting, they look more of like, okay, what do I need for this amount of time of which I'm going to be here? And if I'm owning, I want what I want. Yeah. And most people are sacrificing on both of those now, which is why they feel like it's, it's unaffordable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to bring those two, um, strands together, one thing that I, I've been trying to talk about a bit more recently is the relationship between, uh, the, you know, work with me here, guys, the relationship between the, um, uh, kind of financing construction of condos yep. and the the rental market because in Toronto and Vancouver approximately kind of 30 to 40 percent of our total rental stock is actually uh, private condos right yes. or townhouses right yep. people buy them as investments and rent them out and so if we can get let's say a new building in Vancouver delivered with 200 condo units that are privately owned you know uh Statistically, roughly 30% of those, so 60 units, are going to hit the rental market pretty quick, which will be a materially like a material contribution to the rental supply, right? But what we've done now, like for example, with the foreign buyer ban, is remember how to again, housing is built by private developers. Well, how do private developers build housing? They get construction loans from RBC or BMO or whomever. How do they get those construction loans? Pre-sales, right? Mm -hmm. They need to they need to achieve a, a number of pre-sales is commensurate with the size of the construction loan that they need. And when we reduce the size of the pre-sale market, right, again, so the logic would be, look, this is great. We exclude foreign buyers. There's more left for locals, right? I mean, at a simplistic level, it makes sense. Problem is, if you exclude the rest of the world from the pre-sale market, the developer gets less pre-sales. If he can't or she can't sell pre-sell enough units to get his construction loan, um, then the building doesn't get built. And who cares if they're bought by foreigners when, again, remember, 30% of them are going to wind up with the rental market. So you'll have more supply in the for sale market, which mm. should, over time, uh, promote affordability. And 
more immediately, you'll have more supply in the rental market. Because in Vancouver, it's almost 40%. Last time I checked of our rental market is actually privately owned condos, not apartment buildings. I right? mean, ours is probably higher. The new ones that are launching in Toronto right now, like I would argue 70% of those buildings like that people bought three, four years ago. Oh yeah. yeah. They're 70% yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. investors. No, it's not a zero. It's not a zero. It's not a zero sum game. And that's unfortunately how, how the, the, the housing discussion is so often approached in a sort of adversarial way when it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really need to be. Um, there, there's a way to align both the developers incentives with the, the need for, for more housing and to deliver that housing faster. But it usually comes like, well, we don't, you know, we don't, we need to, we need to, we need to exclude foreign buyers or we need to have an empty homes tax so that we can kind of control or influence the way uh, the private sector is interacting with property. But again, all of those things just uh, make it um, more difficult. Like the yes in my backyard movement. Have you guys heard of this? Now it's in multiple cities. I think it started in San Francisco. Yimbies, right? <laughs> Yeah. Their whole thing, their whole thing, to the extent that I've, I mean, I'm not officially part of it, but to the extent that I've read about it, and there's some really great work put up by the, I think it's called the Sightline Institute in Seattle, okay. uh, but they do stuff, they write about the Canadian context as well. It, it, it's almost just thing, we don't even care, right? Luxury housing, rental housing, social housing, single family homes, missing, whatever. Let's just, let's just orient our whole policy approach and the way in which the public sector and private sector works together to deliver more housing of any type. It's a, it's a it's a kind of paint with a broad strokes message. But if you've been to San Francisco recently, I've not been since pre-COVID. But even then, uh, wow, we're going to talk about a dire need for more housing. Interesting. So, I yeah. I wanted to bring something up. So you talked about foreign buyers for a little bit there. Uh, that yeah. ban, I believe, goes till the end of 2025. And then as of right now, just just goes away. And thus, they're going to change something when that time comes. Um, we had a Toronto developer on the show uh, I don't know, a few months, I guess quite a few months ago now, Brad Lamb, who does uh, Toronto. I think he's done Calgary, some Ottawa stuff. I don't believe he's ever come to BC, but anyways. And we had asked him like, listen, you're maybe only one of the people that would know this and you'd be another one is like, when we talk about the foreign buyers, when you were working in the development space and selling these buildings, was it a good percentage of foreign buyers actually buying these things up? Like no. is it as high as we thought or no? No, no. Okay. The, the instance in my experience, and this goes back to my previous time with McDonald Realty, which is actually when I looked at this more more closely, the, the instance of some guy or some family in, let's call it China or mm. Paraguay, just randomly reaching out and buying a single family home or a condo in Vancouver or in Toronto is exceedingly rare. If they do do it, it's usually because they have a child who's going to school here, they have plans to migrate, or somebody, mom or dad, is already living here. Right. But they just they don't have status yet. They don't they don't PR yet. But they're they're sort of in the process of uh, forming a more permanent connection with our country. That 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 the second case is way, 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 way more common than the first case. Right. So, you know, for foreign buyers per se, they're probably more of a factor in the kind of luxury condo presale market. But in the market in general, in my experience, I don't have data to back this up. But just sure. anecdotally from all the deals I've looked at, very rare. Steve, I don't know what you've seen, but. No. I don't do a ton of I don't do a ton of presale, um, so it was never really part of our business. I just think all of these things are just ridiculous. They're something to they they are moved by the government to try and look like you're doing something. Hundred <clears throat> percent. So Absolutely. more so more so than the new sixplex law in Vancouver. More so than what BC is about to announce with three and four plexes everywhere. 
more so than all of that, the number one thing they could do to help right now is what they are looking at. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I know Ravi said one of the things that they're looking to do is remove the public hearing portion mm -hmm. from any mm -hmm. development. So if mm -hmm. it fits in the OCP, NCP, then can we just go straight to councillor votes and mm -hmm. find out if this can pass or not pass? Why do we have to hear from the neighbor that's lived on the corner for 50 years in a bungalow who doesn't mm -hmm. like where the dumpsters are going to be placed? Like we, uh, that's one person. I, Tom, one sec. That's be because one I pay taxes and I've lived in this. I'm just being the person and I deserve yeah. okay. to have an opinion on this and, and you should not pass it through without me because I lived in this area for 30 years and I deserve to have my, my opinion heard. Your right? opinion. No, you don't. <laughs> Shut up. Um, your, your opinion should be heard in the overall scope of where you think the plan is going to go. So in the NCP stage, OCP stage is usually probably pre-done. Uh, NCP stage, which is kind of the more official plan, is going to get you that's where you need to be like, no, we want density here. We don't want density here. And then the individual units, that needs to just, you know what? We we got to remove that. I mean, how long does it take for first, here in Surrey, I don't know if it's called this where you guys are, first reading, second reading, third reading, and then final approval or fourth reading or whatever they call it here. So like how, how many 7 p.m. Wednesday meetings do we have to get to get yeah. a lot subdivided? Right. Yeah. Yeah. A one lot subdivided, let alone a tower. So I, yeah. it just reminds me, um, Jim Patterson owns Save on Foods. And when I lived in Guilford, so this would, I bought 2005. So I want to say this was probably 2007, eight. I was watching, I don't know how I ended up on a city councilor meeting on TV back when I used to have real TV, but they were, they were talking about this development from a grocery store and, it was the neighbors were there because they literally didn't want the dumpster or the alley or the garbage truck or the, let's call it the loading dock to be in this yeah. particular spot, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. That development opened, I want to say a year and a half ago. So it was shut down for a decade, almost a decade, yeah. well, probably oh, yeah. over a decade, just because we couldn't tell the neighbors, you know what? I know you bought there in 1956. I'm sorry. This is where the development's going. Because this so, is what zoned for commercial or whatever. So I think that's an elegant uh, solution, right? Like I kind of, uh, to talk out of both sides of my mouth, um, on the one hand, further to my point, we live in a democracy. You want people to have their say, even though it's, it's inefficient and annoying, it's better than people not having a say, right? So, but on the other hand, I hear you. If there's already, like, so two scenarios, Steve, if there's already been an, OCP passed, and I agree, the public's uh, opportunity to have input should be in that kind of NCP OCP development, right? So they've already had a chance to have input. If there if there's been an OCP passed, I'll go a step further. They passed the OCP, and your uh, development permit uh, conforms to the OCP. Uh, I, again, if you really really want to. Uh, accelerate the, the the kind of delivery of housing along the same lines of removing the GST on rental buildings, um, either don't have a CAC or a bribe as you called it, or uh, have it have it be something totally, um, what's the word, like prescribed, which is I think what Burnaby has, right? It's a, the dollars per square foot. There's no guesswork. There's no negotiation. You pay it, you move on, right? Mm -hmm. So 
OCP's passed. My development permit conforms to the OCP. No public hearing. Like I think there's, I want to think about it, but I think that that could that could actually that that's another like concrete thing you could do to really, uh, how shall I say, increase the speed of the process. Um, now, if hold on, let me finish. If within that, if I want to bring a a, a, re, a, a OCP has passed, but I want to do a, a redevelopment that is an overt rezoning, not consistent with the OCP. Like in the OCP, the site's zone commercial, but I want to do mixed use. In that case, you probably still need to have a public hearing because I'm trying to do something that's not in the OCP. Or we say, sorry, not there. Move on. You could do that. You could do that, I guess. Right. Yeah. Like it should, it should almost be the same thing. Does it fit? Does the square peg fit in the square hole or the round yeah. hole? Now yeah. we can proceed or not proceed. If you bought the wrong piece of land, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Right? Like that That seems to happen. Um, so I don't know. It's... It, I, I get it all. I understand. Um, I just think that that is so much more effective to be yeah. able to remove 18 months of public hearings is yeah. so much more effective than the wish that you're going to tear down your 1950s bungalow and build a sixplex, right? Like that's just yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> well, the, and, 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 and then to double down on that, the, and the really um, annoying bureaucratic administrative part of this. So rezonings are one thing. And I think your suggestion would be a really good way to, um, or could be a really good way to um, shorten the, the rezoning cycle. But then you switch over into the development permit. And uh, by the way, Tom, you guys call it something different in Toronto. I think you guys have like uh, entitlement and then you have like a site plan and then a building permit, something like that. Yeah. But anyway, instead of site plan, we have development permits. So then okay. the development the development permit process, so it's already been rezoned, right? But then the development permit process, there's so much room for process improvement there as well. Because what, what happens is that um, certain municipalities are much more discretionary than others. And so then it becomes this very unnecessarily long back and forth with the planning department about uh, more subjective stuff, like the location of a bike storage room or, or what have you. And that also greatly slows down the process. And the site's already rezoned. So the controversial part's already over, right? And that's why some municipalities, like I think Vancouver, based on the last study I read, is, let's say, two years to get a condo building development permit squeezed out. And there's other municipalities within BC where it's one year, like half the time. So there's obviously a way to do it better. And in most cities, what people don't realize is the rezoning and the permitting process are one and then the other. Yeah, they're correct. not can, can we hey can we get this rezoned for this project of which if it's done at the end we can just start building no we can't do that we have to sit here and rezone it for a year and a half then we're going to build permits for a year and a half then we're yeah. going to build for 5 years yeah. and tr- finally get this so we're we're talking a, a 10 year at best case scenario for a high rise i do think other than um just cac's and defining them as bribes which they are um <laughs> Uh, for for people that are not uh, versed versed in real estate, OCP means official community plan or concept plan, let's call it, whichever one you like. And then the yeah. other one is neighborhood. So NCP, neighborhood, right? So the OCP is first. It is the more general side of things. And then the NCP is the official. Yeah, that's, I think the that's right. One. Yeah, OCP yeah. tends to be a bigger, cover a bigger geographic area. And be yeah. less detailed. Yep. Yeah, correct. And then the NCP really narrows down to exactly what the future holds. Well, in some areas of Vancouver, I don't know about Toronto, Tom, some areas of Vancouver, for example, aren't covered by either. 
So then again, mm. you're you're then you're just doing a bespoke rezoning, which is going to take forever, even for like, to do a little sixplex, right? Like, and it's just like well, you just look at it. I remember I looked at this uh, townhome development. This is back in 2015, 2016, which was near um, uh, Kingsway and Clark, just west of there in Vancouver. And they wanted to take. We did the project marketing. Um, I think it was Ken Chong, um, Steve, in the in the Vancouver office. Um, so I just talked to him. It's like, hey, tell me about the process here. And they did finally get it done. But just to take three or four single family homes and redevelop that into uh, a, a row of, of townhomes, the rezoning permitting process was as long or longer than the construction process. Like if we could just change that, right? It should it shouldn't take as long to push around paperwork as it does to actually build the building. Now it yeah. did finally get built, but it just was, you know, again probably twice as long as it needed to be, given that you're you know, you're not, you're not, you're not going really high. You're still delivering sort of family oriented, uh, ground oriented product, uh, adjacent to, 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 to shopping and adjacent to transit. Like this should be sort of a slam dunk, no brainer. Like here's your building permit, go build us more housing. Yeah. We have was- a, a big issue though. I think particularly in Vancouver, probably more than any other city is nobody realizes how many just single family homes are Vancouver. It's always been a NIMBY kind of uh situation forever even they put in the freeway in what 1962 or something they put the number one through and they went oh yeah we don't want that freeway in the city of vancouver so it doesn't go through the city of vancouver right the city of vancouver doesn't have a freeway that's how stupid planned it is right that thing should have gone straight down let's call it first avenue uh through the city core and and through stanley park and they just diverted the thing and then kept all single family homes everywhere. So the the planning into the future has always been so poor. And that's where I think we're Vancouver's going to play catch up forever. If they would have started getting rid of single family homes in the 60s and 70s and 80s through most of the city, we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in right now. It's interesting, right? I think the 1972 election was a watershed. I think it related to the um 1972 Vancouver election related to the freeway, but it also related to the West End. And uh, I remember looking at this back in 2019. And uh, up until 1972, that's when most of the West End got built. And so, Tom, for your benefit, the West End, not to be confused with West Vancouver or the West Side of Vancouver, the West End is one of the (laughs) densest residential neighborhoods, I think, in North America. It's uh, a lot of apartment buildings that were built in kind of 50s, 60s, 70s, um, with relatively little setbacks between each other. and right next to Stanley Park and next to downtown. So it's high density rental housing with some condos in a very central area. But uh, the, how shall I say, the anti-development types didn't like it. And that was sort of my understanding is I'm 1972 is eight years before I was even born. But uh, that was the, uh, the 1972 election was in a sense a referendum on that kind of development. And if you look at all the buildings, all the rental buildings in Vancouver that got built, up to 1972, between 1972 and sometime in the 90s, call it, there was only a few built, relatively speaking, and, and some of those were permit, like we got the permit issued before 1972, but because that election, uh, like a, a strongly anti-growth council came in and sort of stopped. But it's frustrating, Steve, further to your point, because he's talking about the need for more um, housing supply in central areas. And then in Vancouver, you look at the West End and like, wait a minute, we got this done in the 60s and 70s. We built all of these buildings. And what they did, love it or hate it, I kind of like it, is they traffic calmed a lot of the streets. So even though it's super dense, because you don't have a lot of traffic on the inside streets, it, they have, and they planted trees, right? So it actually feels quite tranquil. Mm-hmm. And you're right beside downtown, so you can walk to work or take the bus or whatever. So we got it done. <laughs> we got it done. So 
it's not, it can't be that hard to get it done again. Do you need insurance? The answer to that question is obviously yes, of course you do. Whether you are a tenant, landlord, or homeowner, you need to insure your property and belongings. And when I insure my investment property, personally, I choose Square One. Square One is affordable online insurance for everyone. If you apply for your Square One insurance policy using the link in the description of the show notes, listeners of the Tom Story Show can receive $20 off right now simply by going to squareone.ca slash the tom story show square one is no joke i personally use square one for my landlord policy on my investment condo i picked square one because they were easier to work with than other insurance companies and when i had an issue with my previous policy coverage in relation to my stratas coverage square one was the insurance company that came up with a solution for my insurance problem at an affordable rate. Online quotes take less than five minutes with Square One. Get your home insurance quote today at squareone.ca slash the Tom Story Show and save 20 bucks. Jonathan, I wanted to bring up something that I really want your opinion on, and this all kind of goes back to housing in general, is just where the inflation numbers are at right now. Obviously, October 25th, we have another potential 25-point hike. Who, who knows what's going to happen here? Uh, just want to get your sense on how you think this plays out the next. I know it's anyone's best guess, but how are you feeling about it? I'm more interested to hear what you gentlemen have to say. Because I, I, I remember the first in-person sales meeting I went to, which was in Vancouver, which was in early April, right after I rejoined. I rejoined in late March. Um, and one of the realtors here in Vancouver, excellent agent, Carly Rice, um, I think she had been, don't go, don't quote me, but it was something like talking about a, a condo that her client got on the previous weekend. And so you're in a, a, you know, interest rates are escalating, but there's limited supply. And I think there was something like 13 offers on a condo in Kitsilano. Nice neighborhood, but it's just a weird market. You have high interest rates relatively in our lifetimes. So higher borrowing costs, yet good properties are still selling with multiple offers. Um, so I just, I don't know. I, sorry, I'm not, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's such a, you know, other friends of mine, they got blown out of the water on, I don't know, three, four, five, six places they were offering subject free. Uh, again, they wanted a townhome in kits, which is desirable neighborhood and desirable product type. Townhomes are really hot in Vancouver right now because single family homes are so expensive. And uh, they finally got a place, but it was like really tough. And they're dream buyers. They're offering over asking, not subject to financing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I can just share my own experience. So we do a ton, we do a ton of condos in downtown Toronto. Uh, we help a lot of people sell their condos and then buy a house. A lot of our clients are upsizing right now. Yeah. And the example that you just gave with that agent is exactly what was happening to happening to me in March, April, May, and the first little bit of June. That was what the condo market was. Even though the interest rates were higher, there was such a limited supply that things were still moving with multiple offers and it was happening. Now, I ran these numbers literally yesterday and I thought this is kind of just interesting to bring up. So we are now officially in Toronto for the first time, I'd say since maybe October, 2020, fundamentally in a buyer's market for downtown Toronto condos. We have 7.2 months of inventory. We had two to three months of inventory the entire year until June, July, 25 points. And then it picked up again. Now I took this and went, okay, all of downtown Toronto, how many condos are for sale right now? There was 2,200 on the market. That might sound like a lot or, or a little depending on Toronto, but normally that number is like 1,200. Like, so it's double what we normally have. <laughs> and then I broke it down. I said, well, who's selling these things? So I did a search of my system, did it by occupancy. So 
25% of the units for sale as of right now, recording this in Toronto, are owner occupied selling their properties. Okay. I live there. I want to sell it. You know, uh, 33% were tenanted. 720 tenants have been told we're going to sell your property likely because, you know, interest rates, uh, it's either coming up or I'm on the variable. And then what was kind of the most interesting number to me was there was 874, which was 40% of the active inventory that was currently vacant for sale. So you add up vacant and tenanted, and this isn't numbers that like the mainstream media has access to or really knows about yet. The, the headline could be 73% of Toronto condos are investors trying to liquidate. So mm-hmm. where I'm trying mm-hmm. to take this back here now, yeah, we have 10 condos on the market right now. I sold one yesterday. We're, we're like, you know, we're getting ahead of the market. We're making price reductions, but we're going to see a drop off till the end of the year. And I'm just talking about condos in this conversation. But for the first time, slowly I'm having people reach out to me being like, it's time to sell. So I, I, I do think there are, it's starting with the investors, but there are people that are, what I'm trying to say with all this is like, sorry for the long answer, but no, no. I think Bank of Canada has done a lot of damage, what they were trying to do. I think a lot of people are secretly struggling right now. They haven't officially said anything. So my gut is, I hope they don't do anything in October and December. But what I think could happen is I think there's 25 points in October and then they're done till the end of the year and then we'll see what happens. But one of two things are going to need to happen for condo prices to go up again. Inventory has to drop off in half from where it is right now or rate cuts have to start happening. And who knows? Now, saying all that in your market and in my market, freehold housing is still selling very quickly with multiple offers in different areas because there's none of it for sale. But we finally at least have inventory for condos, which I haven't been able to say that in a long time. When I first rejoined McDonald's Real Estate Group, uh, inventory was um, at one of the lowest points in the last 25 years. Steve, please correct me if I'm wrong, but now my understanding is it's sort of at a normal point in terms of total units on the market. Um, Uh, We are... Tickling the six thousand in the Fraser Valley for total units available in resale. So that to me is a very comfortable. Yeah, let's go and see three or four houses this weekend. Right, right, and uh, you know, Tom. Further to your point, I mean, I uh, on the one hand, so going back to what we talked about before, the and I, I, I assume the Bank of Canada is factoring this in, but the more that they raise interest rates, the harder it is in the presence of already elevated construction costs, the harder it is for developers to make deals pencil. So mm-hmm. the less projects get started uh, and, and, and then the less progress we make to addressing this underlying supply shortage, therefore the more upward pressure on, on shelter costs. Does that make sense? 100%. So that part of this is a little bit self-defeating. Um, and, uh, you know, here in Vancouver, the headline number from, Last month was, you know, one bedroom units are now renting for $3,000 a month, which is, I think, probably the same in Toronto, give or take. Uh, Two bedroom units, probably at least $4,000 a month in decent areas, maybe more. And so, uh, you know, my brother and I have like a triplex basically in East Vancouver, and we took a like a laneway house, like a coach house Mm -hmm. to the market. Uh, This is in late 2022. And we had I think 22 groups the first day actually physically show up, leaving aside phone and email inquiries. Like it was just mayhem. I should say a little plug, uh, well-managed by McDonald Commercial, our property management division. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so 
with, and this is something you guys, you, you would know better than me because you're actually working with buyers and sellers, whereas I'm in this sort of removed management position. But if I'm, in, if I'm sitting here, if I still have a job, because unemployment rate has gone up a little, but it's you know still, the, the labor market is still relatively strong. So if I have a job and I could pay 4,000 a month to rent a place, if I have a wife or maybe a kid or something, uh, I might just try to find a way, even at 6%, to do a five-year fixed and buy something because do I really want to pay $4,500 a month in interest, or not interest, rent, when I could be sure. paying a mortgage? And again, it, 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 with positive immigration, relatively low unemployment, 1% vacancy in the purpose-built rental market, I don't, I mean, it puts a bit of a floor on prices. I'm not saying prices won't go down. Uh, I think they'll, they'll be flat. Another interest rate hike, it'll do psychologically weird things to the market. It'll probably, yeah. and then you're heading into Christmas anyway. I think as soon as they lower rates though, because of those underlying structural factors, I think the market will, that's my, that's my estimation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I think rental market prices will remain high moving forward. I, I don't really see a ton of relief coming, e- even though all the stuff we talked about, it's like those purpose built rental buildings with the no GST. It's like, well, get working on it now. Right. But that's not coming for a no. few years. Right. No, no. And, uh, and yeah, I do. I do. It's fun. Yeah, I, I really just want to affirm uh, again. You can always find common ground. I really want to affirm what the federal liberals did. I think it was a smart move and it's an obvious move. It always struck me as odd that as a developer, right, you. You buy the land, you build a rental building, get your financing and everything, and then you hold on to it. You don't want to sell it. But as soon as you start putting tenants in there, you got to pay GST on market value. Like this just doesn't make sense, right? This is a, anyway, I, I commend the government for taking, it's, 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 there's a lot more we could do, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, sorry, you're, I you're, cut you off. no, no, no. I mean, that's exactly what uh, Steve said recently. I think you guys are, are absolutely yeah, totally. on Totally. Like, why would you, why would you pay sales tax on something you're not selling? It makes no sense to me. But because of that, right, it's because tax, that's what you, you have to do. I don't know. It's all, I think we're going to be in a spot over the next, and, and Vancouver is more insulated than the Fraser Valley from this. Uh, we're going to see prices decline and we're going to see costs go up and that's not going to be good. Um, we're seeing a massive amount of the listings that are hitting the market now were bought in 2021. So I'm assuming those are variable rate uh, mortgage people that bought at the top that now can't continue to to own uh, my advice to them is if that's the case get out quick i'm just worried my worry in the market is the 25 renewals the 25 26 renewals of the people who are not paying attention to this and just living their life because their payments are going to go up um so i really hope that we can get below five and a quarter which is the stress test that all those people bought at mm-hmm. but realistically um if we don't get below let's say five and a half percent on the mortgage rates not even the the overnight lending but just the mortgage rates um, short term i think there's going to be a lot of pain and it's going to be doubled down on when those people go to sell their rent might be the same payment of which they now cannot afford in their owning so it's not going to fix the situation to just sell out either right it's a really hard spot to be in that being said, mm-hmm. when you plot new people coming and builds, um, it, I mean, I'm just trying to position how can I pay off as much of my debt right now as I can to buy my next investment property. So I'm predicting a very bad market and getting ready to buy. How stupid is that? <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's not, I think it's not stupid at all. I think you've read the tea leaves, in my opinion. I think you've read the fundamentals correctly. So, and I think there's going to be some great opportunities in the next in the next kind of 24 months. 
So it's very it's very interesting too because if you look across Canada with today's mortgage rates, even with the decreases in prices we we saw from peak of market wherever that was in your specific market, likely February twenty two for for most people. Real estate has never been more expensive on a monthly basis if you need a mortgage than it is today. Mm, mm, mm. Owning and renting. Good the price, the prices, yes, have, have dropped off. But the monthly payments to own that, that asset, and Steve, just to jump on what you were saying with the people coming up, the, the 2025 renewals, I spoke with my mortgage guy yesterday, and I was like, what are people doing that are coming up on renewals even now? And maybe they're at three and a half or whatever, but it wasn't six and a half. It mm-hmm. wasn't where things are at like as we're recording now. And he's like, pretty much everybody, if they had 15 years left of their amortization, they're pushing it back to 25. Now, the banks will allow that because what do they care? Now, it's not necessarily a great thing for the homeowner, but that's that's the little thing that's going to happen that's going to continue to get people to... So I'm not as concerned as I previously was. Mm-hmm. Because the banks are allowing that, you can push back the amortization to where it started. That's where I think most people are going to head towards. Over they're the going to. Year. They have no they're choice. Gonna, yeah, they're going to. I think they have choice, but that well, again goes into my my. Cont- they do have choice. Don't laugh at but me. That's if they have Come money on. in the bank that they can afford the difference, or do a lump sum payment, no, or accelerate no, the payments. They, they need to look at their costs and get serious, right? Yeah, I've said how many times have I said this? Everybody thinks a $500,000 one-bedroom apartment is ludicrous, but $120,000 luxury SUV, totally reasonable, Yeah, right? Like, come on, guys. Let's get serious. You can look at your expenses and you can adjust for things. And part of that is going to be probably pushing out your amortization if you bought at in, let's say, 2021, unless those rates come down. What I do know for sure is we're making best guesses and how many of our best guesses have been completely wrong. I thought we were going to see a 10% decline in prices this year and we're back up 10% waiting for a 10% decline again. So mm-hmm. like we don't know where we're going to be. I just I I with what I see out there right now people that are going to be in tough if you need to sell in 2425, I think you it could be a rough time for you. Um, but if you don't and you make your payments, the other side of this, I think is going to be next level. I think these, these prices are going to be way higher than anybody can even fathom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I agree. Uh, best guesses estimates are just, are just that. I think if you, to step back, if you just look uh, at, Going back to Tom's point, my point, Steve, your point about we're lucky to live here. If you just look at the geopolitical situation in so many other parts of the world, uh, Vancouver, Canada, Toronto has a lot going for it, which is why I don't think we'll have any problem hitting those immigration targets. People are going to want to come. That's not uh-huh. really the issue. And we don't have, and that's another interesting topic, right? To get it right. Look, so many Western countries uh, or countries like Japan, for example, Western Europe have, they're having their own population challenges. Uh, because of uh, demographics, right? And and since real estate is about people and human beings interacting with buying, selling, living in, shopping in real estate, if you have a long-term decline in your population, that'll also do interesting things to land and real estate values. It just mm. is what it is. So that's, sorry, that's a sort of a sidebar, but this is something I've been thinking about recently. There's all this hand-wringing, go back 30, 40 years about the population bomb. Now we're looking at actually the alternate scenario where even in places like Africa, they still have positive population growth from from birth rate, but it's slowed down. 
right? So globally, that's, sorry, whole other topic, but that's going to do interesting things to real estate in our lifetime, I think, if the demographics continue to shift. I think we're going to have I, to have you back just to cover that. I think that would be super interesting. Um, Steve, you got something to say? Because I, I want to wrap it up with a final question. No, I, I agree. I think um, there there is a chance that, like, for instance, if Canada didn't have, I mean, its current immigration policy, not necessarily a big fan of, but if we didn't have substantial immigration, uh, ain't nobody here having enough babies. So, you know, that's not a good thing, generally speaking. And I do believe that our future... I don't know if it's my lifetime or not, but our future will be uh, Elon Musk's, you know, hand like robots, personal robots that are coming out. And that's where our labor is going to be. And there's going to be a declining population. I don't think the the planet hits. What are we at? Eight billion. I don't think the planet hits 10 or 12 billion people. I think it, it's going to decline. And sure, that was going to have a negative effect on real estate prices in the year 2400 so i'm not really gonna worry about that so much <laughs> fair enough fair enough uh okay final question and i'm gonna take this an inside baseball real estate industry question because i feel like we've given the the viewers and listeners of the show what they wanted on a general real estate thing so but uh, jonathan i want your opinion on this you're the president of mcdonald realty i work for royal LePage in ontario uh we've okay. had phil we've had phil soper on the show i asked him the same question because you guys are like in those positions and this has nothing to do with anything else we've talked about today. But there is a there's a trend right now in the real estate industry where these new models are are forming. And I'm not going to say any names, but they're creating downline models and saying to the agents, "You be your own boss. You know, you you build your future. You own your business." And companies like ours, which I say Royal Page and McDonald, I feel like are, are like a similar vibe in terms of like just everything that we do, right? And Phil said the same thing when he was on. Do you think this is a trend, what's happening with these cloud companies and everything that's happening around it? Is it a lot of hype or do you see this actually making a dent in business models like mine, like yours, like Steve's in terms of like just the overall real estate landscape? So it's nothing new, right? This this started with Keller Williams. It, yeah. it wasn't maybe quite as technologized, but I think I, I believe they were the first on a major scale to have this sort of MLM, multi-level mm -hmm. marketing downline model. So I think it's a real factor. I don't think it's a flash in the pan the way some other things have been the last 24 months. Um, okay. these, uh, and uh, yeah, we're not, we're not naming names, but uh, some of these uh, cloud-based models uh, are the, by agent count, some of the fasting growing, fastest growing yeah. brokerages in North America. So I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's some sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of fad or some sort of joke, right? Um, fact is covid changed the way in which, uh, maybe not forever, but changed the way in which people interact with physical space and the demand for office space is uh, different now. And the way yeah. in which people interact with that office space. Uh, ironically, we are opening new offices and sort of doubling down on the physical footprint. So you could say we're the real estate company that believes in real estate, for better or for worse. It is what mm -hmm. it is. Um, mm -hmm. I think that uh, if I... <laughs> That's actually agents. really good. I like that. That's no, really good. You know, it's 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 a little odd, right? No, no, we don't we don't believe in in physical offices, but we want to be. Well, your we want you to have one. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. Um, so I what do I think? I think that uh, now I lost my train of thought. Anyway, so yeah, no, real 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 real. Uh, there, these are these are uh, tangible. I won't say threats, but they're tangible disruptors in the marketplace. And I don't think they're going to go away overnight. Uh, what I would say to you and Steve is. Is your time better spent if you actually break, you know, crunch the numbers? Is, you, is your time better spent trying to find one more buyer or seller through the, all of the means in which you do that, 
and, and making, I think in Toronto, what is commission across the board? Market average. I know it's always negotiable, 5%, give or take, right? 2%, 2.5%. Yes. 2.5%, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's lower out here, uh, the market average. But is your time better spent doing that? Or is it better spent, you know, recruiting an agent from whom on average, you're going to get a relatively small amount of annual yeah. income? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, just like you're the real estate company that believes in real estate, I'm the real estate agent that believes in selling real estate. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're on the yeah. same page there. So it, it, the, the answer is obviously yes to your question. Like, of course, it's it's yes to your question. Yeah. So yeah. that that but but but, you know, I, and I would just say uh, to answer a question that you didn't ask, mm -hmm. um, I, I think that and I wrote an article about this three or four months ago in, in REM. Um, I think that the because of interest rates, because of artificial intelligence, and because of the staggering amount of data that you can find with a Google search. The irony is I think that actually intensifies the need for what Tom, you and Steve do, right? Because people, even myself, whenever I buy or sell, I always use a real estate agent, of course, right? Because I want that trusted advisor to, 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 to uh, brainstorm with and to help me see, okay, in this, in this vast waterfront of data and tools, what's actually relevant to the home buying and selling experience and what's a total waste of time? And, and so I am very optimistic, um, you could even say bullish, on the crucial role that realtors play. And I, I, I firmly believe we'll continue to play into the future. I'll give my opinions on that, Tom, too, just so you know. Um, the reason I am at McDonald is two. Uh, one is for sure bricks and mortar, right? I am Maybe I'm old school, but going into the office, just going into the office uh, that simple practice of which a lot of those brokerages now don't have offices gets you experience that you can't get otherwise. So where do you get it? You don't get real estate tours anymore. You don't get like all these things don't happen anymore. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you go visit other people open houses on Saturday or Sunday when you got no business to do. Um, but the other reason uh, that I stick with McDonald is they have a very good I don't know if it's even technically a policy, but it's the way it happens. Our managing brokers don't sell. And without, I have dealt with um, broker, managing brokers who are selling real estate. And I couldn't imagine being in my own office and going to my competitor for advice. Going to my, maybe the guy on the other side of the transaction is the person I need to get legal advice from, or some sort of advice from, not legal advice, right? So, having a uh, selling broker, it would get me out of anywhere. So, just so you know, this episode is brought to you by McDonald Realty and Group. Jonathan, Jonathan <laughs> told us before we started recording that they're also the only ones that would deal with you, Steve. So you got no place to go, right? I mean, I don't, I don't get a lot of uh, my team members are always like, I'm getting all these recruiting phone calls. I'm like, I don't get those. <laughs> I don't get those at all. I think I may have messed up because I, I did get a, like, three years ago, I got a call from one of those. Uh, I think I could have been high up on the pyramid currently. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I just said, hey, I just said, hey, where's my office? And they said, yeah, at your house. And I'm like, this was the middle of lockdown, by the way. I'm like, I got two screaming kids downstairs. If you think yeah. I'm working here every day, get out of here. So, And that was, you know, that was something that uh, that was one of my ninja powers during COVID. I shouldn't even say this, but uh whatever. You guys wanted me to be direct, right, Steve, mm -hmm. you know? And and that was something I did a lot during COVID. I was not at this company at the time, but um, within the within the constraints of other people's comfort level, I still, especially in negotiation stuff, I still tried to have in-person meetings. Sometimes they were like outdoor walking coffee meetings, which I actually really enjoyed. And I still do those. But it's just like this, you're, you spend so much time in technology. It's, you know what? Let's just get together. You don't yeah. want to meet in your mm -hmm. boardroom? Fine. We'll meet, we'll meet at a coffee shop, meet at Starbucks, and we'll go for a walk. And you know, it kind of reminded all of us of the importance. Again, it's the irony is like, because 
things got so technologized, you realize how much you actually value that in-person connection and going into an office, even if you're only going in three times a week versus you used to go in six times a week. So th- that's why we're opening new offices, <laughs> real bricks and mortar. <laughs> Jonathan, this was so much fun. We've gone a little bit over the time that we, we told you you had to be here. So we really, really appreciate your time. Um, I mean, let, let's give McDonald's Realty the pitch that it deserves for you, for you coming on here. Like if agents are listening to this, a, a big, the viewership of ours is real estate agents that are in your market. If they want to learn more about your company, where's the best place for them to go? They can email me at jcooper at macrealty.com or they can go to macrealty.com, our website. And don't go to Steve. You'll probably get a skewed idea of what we're all about. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so we have a, a very strong team of non-selling managing brokers. We have nice offices in the right locations. So you can meet your clients or you can come and interact with colleagues, talk to your managing broker, find open houses for more experienced agents, you know, that, that in-person the kind of connection side. And we have really robust training, both uh, Steve's actually supported us in our training. So we have robust training both for new, but also for experienced, uh, experienced agents. And then going back to step McDonald real estate group. So McDonald realty is a residential division, mm-hmm. um, but a thousand agents, 16 offices across BC, but we also have a standalone commercial division property management. I think we manage, you know, seven or $8 billion worth of assets, third-party management, individual investor units, commercial properties, apartment buildings, you name it. And then project marketing. So new home sales, selling right. stuff before it's built. So across those four divisions, right? If you if you sell your client a condo, then you can also get one of our uh, property managers to manage it for you. So that if they ever decide to sell, obviously it'll go back to you because we're mm-hmm. staying within one company. Hmm. If you have a commercial opportunity, you can co-list it or refer it to our commercial division and you focus on what you're sort of, maybe that's more within your uh, bread and butter. Uh, so there's another, you know, that's, these are, and, and again, these are all under McDonald Real Estate Group of which I'm the president. And so it's kind of the like integrated real estate services. So there's my sales and, pitch. And slightly different than, say, like uh, a Royal LePage or a Remax, McDonald Real Estate Group, Tom, just so you know, is basically, not entirely, but basically individually owned. It's not franchised out in the same manner. Yeah, so if I need, totally. Okay. So if I if I need to go downtown or Carisdale or whatever, because I have a client that's servicing that area, I don't have to be like, hey, let's meet at the the Starbucks down the street, I can be like, Hey, will you meet me on my Carisdale office? Right. Right. So that's a, that's an interesting feature of, I guess, which comes from a company that like you say, believes in real estate. Yeah. Our chairman, our our CEO and chairman is Lynn Sue. She bought the company in 1990 when it was one office and this is my boss and she's grown it. Incredible businesswoman. She's grown it now to 20 offices and all these services that I just told you about. There's about, including staff, (laughs) about uh, 1150, 1200, you know, human beings in the organization, all in BC. Jonathan, this was so much fun. My favorite episodes are that when me and Steve don't have to talk very much and we can just let the guests run the sh- you 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 did it. You came on here. I, I'm saying that like that's that's what we want. That's that's the perfect episode. Really, really appreciate your time. Um, for people that are listening, I I know you definitely learned something new today. If you made it this far into the episode and you're watching us on YouTube, make sure to like this video, subscribe to the channel. And if you're listening on the audio platforms, make sure to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Have an amazing week, and we will see you next Sunday. Bye, Steve. You want to say something? This episode. Was- was brought to you by Realty Ninja. Realty Ninja is the best. Okay. Hire them for your website. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you.